Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Actually at Capacity. And uh, today I'm here with Caleb Maupin, who is a journalist with Russia Today and has also just come out with a book, Kamala Harris and the Future of America. Um, I have not, I've yet to read it, but it uh, is probably relevant at this time. So I definitely uh, recommend checking that out. How's it going, Caleb? All's good. Lovely Saturday afternoon. Yeah, I guess for you guys, it's already Friday, like four. Friday, afternoon, I guess, right? It's yeah. I have it confused. I think it's a weekend. So there you go. I know, because it's the whole New Year's thing. Yeah. So today we're going to be talking about um, imperialism, socialism, Green Book. Um, for people who don't know, uh, the late political leader of Libya, Gaddafi, has a book called The Green Book. It's been translated into English and there's a new introduction that was written by Caleb, um, which is really interesting. I have read this book twice now, uh, just as someone who's interested in, in democratic theory. And it's, it's a very fascinating and unique sort of read. And I think also Caleb's intro uh, is very well done as, as well. So Caleb, I'm curious what writing the intro to this was like and how did you sort of what got you interested in writing the intro for this book and how did that come about well i first heard about the green book when i was listening to npr during the war uh, when the u.s government was sending missiles to to libya and bombing libya uh, the nato bombing campaign to support this cia-led insurrection against the government npr uh, ran a piece demonizing the leader of libya Gaddafi. And they quoted like two sentences from his green book that they determined to be sexist, which I guess these two sentences that, you know, taken out of context or, you know, I mean, they're, they're not what we would say in the West when it comes to gender issues. Mm -hmm. But that made me want to go and actually read the green book, Muammar Gaddafi's um, political thesis, right? I mean, this was mm -hmm. the central, central document of his cultural revolution campaign to transform Libya into a fully socialist society. And I read the Green Book, and it's a brilliant document. Uh, chapter one is about democracy and how to make Libya democratic. Chapter two is about socialism and his own kind of critique of Marxism and application of socialism to Libya. Chapter three is the, uh, the social issues and how they apply the third universal theory. And it's a pretty profound book. Um, and it really kind of presents Gaddafi's understanding of how he built Libya. And Gaddafi was a very, very, very successful leader. Libya at the time, uh, up until 2011, when the so-called revolution happened, Libya had the highest life expectancy on the African continent. It had become a, a country with universal literacy, universal healthcare, universal education. Uh, people from all across the African continent were trying to get in to Libya because it was so prosperous, the top oil exporting country on the continent. They had actually built the world's largest irrigation system. I mean, millions and millions of lives were transformed by, by Gaddafi's socialist system, the Islamic socialist Jamaria, Jamaria, something like that. I don't know the correct pronunciation. Um, and millions of lives were vastly improved. Uh, meanwhile, Gaddafi was a good friend of all kinds of people around the world that were struggling against imperialism, like the Irish people, like the Black Panthers in the United States, like the African National Congress in South Africa. You know, wherever people were fighting for their independence, Gaddafi was on their side. 
Um, so I, I looked to Libya as, as a country that is a great example of socialism working, of socialism being successful in transforming people's lives. Um, and uh, I protested against the bombing of Libya. That was at the height of the Occupy Wall Street movement. And what disturbed me was so many of the leading voices in Occupy Wall Street, not average occupiers, but a lot of the NGO you know, think tank, uh, you know, liberal kind of folks that were in step with the Democratic Party and George Soros, like this was a big divide in progressive circles where the question was, did you support, uh, did you support the overthrow of Gaddafi as a revolution or did you oppose it as an act of imperialism? And so uh, it was a pretty big moment for me politically. Um, I, I kind of cut out when you were talking about the left and the Occupy Wall Street thing. So do you want to, sorry, do you want to yeah, repeat? Um, basically at Occupy Wall Street, there was a big divide over mm -hmm. Libya. Uh, a lot of the kind of, you know, NGO, Democratic Party supporting people who got all the MSNBC interviews and were tied to the Democratic Party and Nancy Pelosi and those kind of folks, uh, the professional activists, the professional left folks, they supported the overthrow of Gaddafi and kind of tried to link the protests at Occupy Wall Street with the with the, this revolution so-called against Gaddafi. Meanwhile, a lot of your rank and file occupiers, people from small towns in Ohio like me, well, working class people, they tended to sympathize with Gaddafi and see him as somebody standing against Wall Street and the 1%. The notion that, uh, that Gaddafi was creating an independent African currency was pretty widespread and known in libertarian circles where there's distrust for the Federal Reserve. Um, there were a lot of people uh, who, who supported Gaddafi on those grounds. There were a lot of black nationalists who were sympathetic to Gaddafi. Uh, Cynthia McKinney, the congresswoman, went to Libya to stand with Gaddafi. The Nation of Islam organized a huge demonstration in Harlem uh, to support, you know, Libya and to oppose the bombing. Um, so, you know, there was a big divide within the Occupy Wall Street movement when it came to Libya. And it was a pretty definitive moment for me um, in, in trying to figure out politically where I stand and what's wrong with the mainstream currents of the left and, and you know, where I stand in this post-Cold War world where there's a lot of political confusion about what left and right really mean. Yeah, I think that's something that's been huge for me as well. I mean, I, I got into politics literally through the anti-war movement and like I've kind of found a sort of streak on the left. Maybe this is more the left in Canada and the US um, more so than in other countries, but they, there seems to be a sort of uh, NATO sympathetic imperialist streak. Um, and I think uh, I'm kind of seeing that the whole Libya thing play out all over again with the Syria discourse as well. And I've kind of noticed, you know, like nothing has broken the brains of like the online left, like Syria has. Um, maybe it's because I was younger during the Libya thing and I didn't really like, I wasn't as into it, but I've just kind of noticed um, there's a sort of, and I think, you know, bringing up like the sort of sexist passages of the book, I think I know which ones uh, you're referring to. Um, two sentences I mean yeah, yeah. like I, I it's like a yeah I recall a, a page from it um I, I've kind of seen this sort of trend of using um progressive language or progressivism or human rights sort of discourse um in order to kind of rally the left behind the imperial project in the U.S. and yeah well, I've written a lot about this because, you know, I spent eight years in a small communist party uh, trying to build this communist party. I was made up of people who'd come out of the 1960s left, a lot of, you know, boomers uh, who were, had marched against the Vietnam War. 
Um, and I was constantly trying to figure out what's wrong. Like, why is there so much confusion? And I studied Marxism and then I traveled and I went to Iran a number of times. I went to Russia, I went to Venezuela, I went to Ecuador. Um, and I went to global communist gatherings. I went to the World Festival of Youth and Students in Ecuador in 2013, and then again to the World Festival of Youth and Students in Sochi, Russia in 2017. And when I met communists from Vietnam and communists from Venezuela and communists from India and communists from, from Namibia and South Africa and Angola, I realized I was meeting a very different breed mm -hmm. of, of activist and person with a very different worldview. Um, and when I talked to these folks, when I talked to different communist parties around the world, I got the same question every time I talked to them. They said, what's wrong with American communists? <laughs> you know, and that forced me to do a, a double take, like, and ask myself, yeah, what is wrong with American communists, right? What is wrong with American communists? And so I spent a huge amount of time studying this question and studying mm -hmm. the late Cold War. You know, it's, we, we study a lot about the 1930s. We study a lot about, about the Russian Revolution, but the late Cold War, the way the Soviet Union was dismantled, all this stuff is very important. And there hasn't been a real conversation about it on the American left. And I came to discover that, that basically the issue comes down to this, that there are two types of people who become revolutionaries and communists, right? Mm -hmm. No matter where you go in the world, you have the first category, which are what you can call the revolutionary intelligentsia. These are college students, uh, you know, middle-class people, people who are around the universities. And, and these folks, they turn to revolutionary politics because they want to tear things down, because they're mad at injustice, uh, because, you know, they feel like the world is not fair. And they tend to have a very, very um, kind of explosive and almost destructive impulse, right? They're filled with rage at the old society. They want to be heroic. They want to tear things down. And people like that are capable of doing some really amazing stuff. But very, very few people uh, in a population ever join this milieu. We're talking like less mm -hmm. than one to maybe even 10%, uh, if you're lucky, of the population are even capable of becoming part of this, this revolutionary intelligentsia. That's the first category. But when countries actually have a socialist revolution and actually overthrow capitalism, it's not because this little revolutionary intelligentsia is, is mobilized. It's because the broad masses of people in their millions are mobilized, right? And the broad masses of people who turn to socialism they have very different desires, right? While this revolutionary intelligentsia wants instability and chaos, mm -hmm. the broad masses of people turn to socialism because they want stability. They want security, right? And it's capitalism that is making their lives unlivable. And they turn to socialism as a way to bring security and bring stability, right? Um, and they want very, very different things. Um, and the brilliance of, of the Russian Revolution was Lenin took this revolutionary intelligentsia of you know, wealthy students and intellectuals and got them to understand how to properly organize themselves so they could mobilize the broad masses of people you know, around the slogan of peace, land, and bread. The Bolsheviks were the people that wanted to end the war. They were the people that were gonna redistribute the land and they were gonna feed the hungry people. And they got millions and millions of Russians to support them on that basis. But after the Russian Revolution, you have the Stalin-Trotsky divide, where Trotsky is one of these cosmopolitan intellectuals who's spent most of his life in New York City and in Vienna and in London. And he's one of these middle-class intellectuals. Stalin, on the other hand, is a guy from Georgia. Uh, you know, he's not even Russian, right? And he's, he's went to seminary school and he's a real salt of the earth organizer of actual workers. And the two of them go head to head, Stalinism versus Trotskyism. Well, Stalinism triumphs and Stalin changes the Soviet Union to be a society that the broad masses of Russian people can support, right? He brings back the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, he starts promoting the notion of a Soviet family with a mother and a father and two children. Now he keeps intact the progressive reforms. Women are voting, women are leaders of the, the party, women are serving in the military. Uh, he's 
electrifying and industrializing the country, but he's kind of rolling back some of the social liberalism that, that was off-putting to the broad masses of, of Russian peasants and workers. And this divide, right, between the, the broad masses of people versus the revolutionary intelligentsia is something that after the Second World War, American intelligence agencies began very, very carefully trying to manipulate. And there was a, a program launched by the CIA, and you can read about this, this is on CIA.gov. They brag about it as one of their greatest achievements. It's called the Congress for Cultural Freedom. And what it was is they started funneling money to leftists um, and trying to exacerbate this divide, funding you know, uh, Trotskyites and anarchists and artists and painters and musicians and doing everything they could to make the, the revolutionary intelligentsia, the intellectuals, those kind of people that were, were, were kind of left wing as hostile to Soviet communism as possible, but also as hostile to the broad masses of people as possible to kind of exacerbate their, their middle-class destructive isolationist tendencies. And that was very key in the United States winning the Cold War. And in, in the Eastern Bloc, there was a huge effort to court college professors, scientists, intellectuals, people like that. Your average you know, Soviet worker, your average factory worker in Poland, they didn't want the Soviet Union to fall. They liked having guaranteed education. They liked having health care. They didn't want socialism overthrown. But, um, but it was that middle-class strata of kind of intellectuals and, and college professors, scientists, people like that, filmmakers, musicians, who did feel stifled, and rightly so. They had very right grievances against the Soviet system, and it was through manipulating them that they were able to overthrow the Eastern Bloc. So this understanding that, that there are two souls within the socialist movement, there's a populist soul and a revolutionary re middle-class pole. Um, and that these polls exist, this is helping me to kind of get to the essence of what is going on here. And mm -hmm. I argue that anti-populist tendencies have really been cemented in left-wing circles. And because of that, in a lot of ways, we're seeing left-wing politics hijacked by imperialism. Um, if you look at what happened during the Arab Spring, how, I mean, it almost seemed like, you know, like the Arab Spring just seemed like this romantic revolution. CNN was calling for a global revolution against dictatorship. The people were rising up. You know, we saw young people in Che Guevara shirts and all of that. I mean, it's that imperialism has hijacked the aesthetics of the revolutionary intelligentsia. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, actually existing socialism in Syria, like with Ba'athist Arab socialism or in China or in Cuba or Venezuela, has gotten somewhat conservative because it's protecting people from the instability of the market, right? I mean, socialism protects working people from the chaos of the free market capitalist system. And, and the socialist governments kind of present themselves in almost a conservative way. We are here to keep your life stable. We're here to protect you from the insecurity of the modern world. There's this world out there in the West where all people care about is money and people don't have families and family loyalties and people aren't religious and all of that. And we as a socialist society where the means of production are controlled by society, we are protecting that. Um, and there is a socially conservative edge to Venezuelan socialism, Cuban socialism, et cetera. Um, meanwhile, uh, the, the, the left-wing aesthetics have been kind of hijacked by imperialism. And that's what makes this period we're living in so confusing. And that's what I've done a lot of work to try and study and, and write about. I wrote about this in my book, City Builders and Vandals in Our Age. I wrote about it in the Kamala Harris book. I talked about Kamala Harris and her direct ties to this whole Congress for Cultural Freedom thing, which is very well documented. I mean, her father was, was a Marxist economist, let's not forget. So, mm -hmm. so there's a lot here. And these are the kind of conversations we need to be having as progressives and leftists if we want to talk about how we can actually change things amid this huge crisis of capitalism. Yeah, I mean, I've been I I have joked a lot about like Jacobin being an op, but like it kind of feels like that because like 
not just because like they do have this the sort of um thing where they have the sort of imperialist streak to it right like when they write about latin america or the middle east they have had a, a history of of kind of siding with the state department narrative but it's, it's also like the aesthetics that they use like there's like this whole like guillotine thing and it's like it's very edgy and it almost seems like there's a, a sort of streak in the left that's you know trying to be counterculture and trying to be like it almost seems like they're trying to be like a punk rock movement rather than like a, a, like something that's supposed to be improving people's material circumstances and it's kind of interesting to see how you know that kind of dovetails with imperialism but I think there's also like a lot of I feel like there's kind of a hole because there's a lot of people who are also put off by the traditionalist rhetoric of someone like Assad in Syria like he recently had a video that was you know seen as transphobic or you know stuff like that as well and then I feel like that also is discrediting to socialist movements so I don't know I'm wondering like where you think we should go from that well, I mean, when it comes to Jacobin, right, I think it's Ben Norton who did the research. I mean, he just pulled up their tax yeah. and showed <laughs> their primary funder is something called the Jewish Communal Fund uh, that is a pro-Israeli lobby foundation, right? They fund J Street, which is a pro-Israel, kind of liberal pro-Israel lobby group on Capitol Hill. They're more liberal, right? They'll criticize Israel for its harsher activities, but they're pro-Israel. Um, you know, and, and they fund, you know, pro-Israeli campus groups as well. And they are one of the primary funders of Jacobin. Um, and I find it interesting because, you know, the Jacobin crowd are the first people to immediately bait me about the fact that I work for RT, right? Oh, right. don't anything he's ever said. He works for RT. Where, meanwhile, if you point out that, hey, you guys are getting funding from the Israel lobby, uh, immediately you get, that's anti-Semitism. Well, no, it's not anti-Semitism. And, you know, I mean, I mean, that doesn't mean that they're necessarily puppets, but it does mean that if, if you're going to bait me over my, my financial ties, I can bait you over your financial ties. But that's off limits, right? And it, it, it's almost a pro-imperialist bias, right? I mean, if it's, if it's okay to bait me for ties to Russia, why is it not okay for me to bait you for ties with Israel? Oh, because Israel is aligned with US imperialism, I forgot. I mean, and it shows like a blatantly pro-imperialist bias. Um, and, uh, you know, the interesting thing about, about Jacobin, I mean, if you look at DSA's history, I've talked about Michael Harrington, who served in the administration of Lyndon Johnson, and there's a whole tradition of what you call State Department socialists of, of kind of social Democrats who were supportive of U.S. imperialism, but favored a bigger welfare state. You can talk about Max Schachtman, uh, who was a big Trotskyite in the 1930s, who eventually became kind of a CIA operative and, and an ally. He was an advisor to George Menia, the AFL-CIO, and, and he was kind of the, the mentor to a lot of the people who eventually became neoconservatives. Uh, the neocons, a lot of them were, were at one point friends or followers of Max Schachtman. Um, so that's kind of an interesting history there. But again, that doesn't discredit anything Jacobin says. Jacobin, if you look into something that they write, the question is, is it true or not? Not, you know, you know, you know, you know, people that may have nefarious ties can say true things. Right. And th this is this is, um, you know, what do they call it? This is a this is an ad hominem fallacy, right. which I, I constantly face and other I mean, and that's the thing is anyone who's tied with anti-imperialist countries like China 
or Russia or Syria or, or Venezuela or whatever is immediately faced with this huge ad hominem. Well, you know, why can't we kind of raise the same questions? Yeah. Um, you know, and at the same time, you know, I'm for LGBT rights. You know, I, I think that, that, that there's no problem with gay marriage. There's no problem with people want to be transgender. That's their business. It doesn't affect me in any way. And there should be no hate crimes and bullying and discrimination. I've protested against the NYPD's policies of profiling trans people. Years before it was trendy, I was in the streets marching against that. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not a social conservative in that sense. But mm-hmm. at the same time, I, I think that the cancel culture approach is a little bit extreme. And I think yeah. that this Really, yeah. At the end of the day, this comes down to social media. Right. In real life organizing, when you're trying to build an anti-war movement or build a, a workers movement or whatever, you want to find common ground with as many people as possible. With people with whom you disagree, you want to go to them and say, hey, we may disagree, but let's do this together and actually get something done. That's how real life organizing works. On the internet, it's completely different. You're not trying to build connections and actually get anything done. You're trying to get as many views and many right. hits. Yeah, as you can. And so you're looking for any little opening you can use to try and call somebody out and expose them. And, and, and we've created this kind of culture where um, where Internet organizing kind of brings out division. I've lost so many friends over silly Facebook arguments that should never have happened. You know what I'm right. saying? Yeah, you know, no, that's definitely that's I think something I've really noticed as well. And and you know, I've I was gonna ask you about this too, because I personally have I guess I wasn't always like of the left. I used to be a libertarian and like I still, you know, work with libertarians all the time on anti-war stuff because like I think people don't understand that like you can't get anything done like you're not going to get anything done especially when it comes to like university organizing where the views that you have are really confined to like the university bubble you're not gonna you know get proper organizing done if you're like picky whereas yeah like I think the point about the internet is very good it's like you have to be as picky as possible and anything can be used used against you um but I don't know how to like fix that (laughs) Yeah. yeah, indeed. I mean, as far as libertarianism, you know, I, one thing I will say that I like about libertarianism is it's not pessimistic. You, know, you meet libertarians, young libertarians, they're people that want to start a business. Uh, they really do believe they can go out in the world and work hard and get ahead. Um, they have kind of an optimistic spirit about them. And I like that. Um, the problem is that it's a very, very individualist philosophy, right? Ayn Rand and objectivism says that one should not have compassion Virtue is, a, you know, uh, that the selfishness is a virtue um, that, that and it promotes this kind of ruthless, rugged individualism, breaking down any group identity. That I think that's very, very toxic. Um, but what they do have is what a lot of people on the left don't have. Right. On the left, you know, you have this kind of destructive. There is no hope. We're all there's too many people in the world. We just need to tear things down. Uh, the world is unfair. We need to go back to the primitive times. And, and, and you know, you have this really dark, pessimistic worldview. So my feeling is what we need is an optimistic socialism. Right. We need right. a socialism that harnesses some of that optimism and hope and working hard and getting ahead. And rejects that destructive, there is no hope impulse that we find among synthetic leftists, right? The synthetic left, the corporate left, the internet left, the Jacobin crowd, they put forward a very pessimistic worldview. I kind of jokingly say that, um, you know, the, the, the mindset of a typical socialist in the United States at this point is, fuck this shit, give me free stuff, you know? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. and, 
you're not wrong. Okay. Corporations get free stuff all the time. People should get healthcare. People should get education, but fuck this shit. Give me free stuff is not an attitude with which you're going to build a mass movement to transform an entire country. Right. And yeah. that, that we've kind of really uh, uh, lost what you can find in the writings of William Z. Foster, the leader of the communist party of the United States during the 1930s. Uh, what you find in the writings of Anna Louise Strong, one of my favorite journalists who was, was an American who lived in the Soviet Union in the 1920s, 30s, and 50s, and, and wrote you know, some glowing articles about China and about socialist projects around the world. There's this glowing optimism, this idea that, that we are going to stand arm in arm with our brothers and sisters around the world and build a whole new society where greed is pushed back and the banks, factories, and industries and the major centers of economic power are forced to work in the interests of all and the good of all, right? I mean, this is, this is what socialism is. Socialism is a very optimistic philosophy. I mean, the goal of socialism is to build a world that is so abundant and so prosperous that the need for any state or government can wither away. Right. And that and that people can just do what they want to do and take what they need from each, you know, to each according to their own ability to from each according to their need. I mean, this is this is the, the vision of communism based on vast material abundance. Right. It's you know, it, it, that that is what communism has always been. Um, and that's been kind of eroded. And instead, we have this kind of pessimistic, destructive politics, which doesn't come from the working class. I argue it comes from the ultra rich that really the fight in the United States right now is the the majority of the rich who are with Trump, you know, you know, they want free markets and, you know, deregulation and lower taxes and the ultra rich, the Rockefellers, the DuPonts, the Carnegie's, the Eastern establishment and the Silicon Valley folks that are more managerial in their worldview. And they want to control the population more carefully and they want to maintain the Western social system. And if that means they have to give everybody a little bit of a universal basic income, or they have to, you know, they're more interested in perhaps, you know, using mass brainwashing with social media to control people. They're more managerial and they're more long-term in their perspective about managing the affairs of, of the Western capitalist system. Whereas the lower levels of capital are like, hey, we just want to make money. We want to make lots of profits and lots of money. They, they resent the ultra rich uh, because they, they feel like the ultra rich, it's kind of rigged in their favor with government intervention. And, and that this is the divide. There's a very good book called The Yankee and Cowboy War by Carl Oglesby. Um, it was written about how during the 1960s, this really was kind of the case, that a lot of the ultra-rich of New England were kind of supporting the anti-war protesters, while it was the, you know, the lower-level capitalists and the arms manufacturers and stuff that were with Richard Nixon and the FBI. And there was a divide in the ruling class. And, and I think that divide is still very well alive. There are different factions within the American deep state that want different things. Um, and the question is, how out of all of this can we actually get out of capitalism and get to a whole new world? What do those of us who really want a new society? How do we maneuver within all of this? And basically what most people that call themselves socialists do is they just kind of attach themselves to whatever the Democrats are doing and they do it louder and, and more extreme, right? If you're, if you're a liberal, uh, you know, if, if you're left-wing, you're a liberal. And if you're really liberal, uh, you become a communist. Well, that's not how it is in most of the world, right? Well, we want something yeah. different. Um, and in a lot of ways, a lot of these working class communities where Trump is very popular, um, you know, you have working class people who are angry at the government, they're angry at the ruling class, and, and there, is, there is a kind of a reluctance on the part of the Democratic Party to ever address their concerns. And, you know, with this cancel culture, there's a shaming of white working class people as saying, oh, it's good that you're poor. Now you know what other people have been through. You know, there's, yeah. there's no desire to kind of harness their working class anger and turn it into class solidarity against racism. 
Instead, there's a feeling that uh, that white workers should simply be shamed and condemned. So, of course, they're rallying around racist Donald Trump. And this is, you know, I I hear Andrew Yang kind of raising concerns about this. And I I like what I'm hearing. I really like what Crystal Ball is saying. I really love what Jimmy Dore is doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I will say the majority of the progressive movement seems to be just kind of focused on helping Democrats get elected and and not really trying to change things. How much money do you think the folks at Chapo Trap House make? Right. How much money goes into into things like Jacobin and all of that? And at the end of the day, what really comes out of it for the progressive movement? Right. I mean, uh, it it doesn't it seems like, if anything, this is just about kind of getting getting people that are already kind of Democrats and liberals fired up and extreme to go out and support the Democrats and liberals, not really acknowledging that we have a completely different worldview and a completely different agenda. Yeah, it also seems like, you know, the creation of a sort of social or cultural bubble, like, you know, oh, we all have these progressive views and we can all feel very virtuous with each other without really doing anything. But I think it makes people really resent like what they call the left. Um, Even if like we can say, oh, well, these aren't the real leftists. And I, I was watching, um, I was introduced to the YouTuber Vouch uh, against my will, uh, but when, <laughs> by uh, our friends at Twink Revolution. And uh, I watched your debate with him and I, I, I found it like very aggravating um, because I think right now it kind of, it, it indicated to me the sort of the way that like there's a left that's just saying like, okay, we have this ideal, we're all pro-communism or we're pro-socialism, but whenever a country actually tries socialism, they they freak out about it and they're like, oh, this country's terrible, they're so oppressive and, and you've been kind of outspoken in your support for really existing socialism. So how do you approach this issue and make your case? Well, in my debate with Vosh, the reason I was there is because Vosh was saying that, quote unquote, tankies or people who defend really existing socialism are the equivalent of Nazis. Right. Um, and I was there to point out to him how illogical that is, because the Black Panthers, who he claims to admire, were huge supporters of Mao, huge supporters of Kim Il-sung in North Korea, huge supporters of Fidel Castro in Cuba. Nelson Mandela was a tanky who admired Stalin and admired Gaddafi. Um, you know, Helen Keller was a tanky, Albert Einstein was a tanky, and that when you say that anyone who supports actual existing socialism is the same as people on the right who say the Holocaust didn't happen, you are completely doing a huge disservice to your audience because some of the greatest freedom fighters internationally and domestically have been have been tankies, right? Um, that's what I was there to, to say to him. And he didn't really want to address that and change the subject and wanted to just, you know, you know, move all over the place and you know, that's how he is. But um, that's why I debated him. But, you know, we can admit that bad things happen in the Soviet Union. I mean, mm-hmm. everybody, even the most staunch defenders of Stalin will, will say that, that, you know, during the great terror of 1936 and 1937, there were lots of people in gulags who didn't belong there and that there was a great fear that spread throughout the population and many people were unjustly persecuted. So I have no desire to try and say that, that what happened during the Great Terror was good or that what, you know, what, what went on in, in gulag prison camps was a good thing or anything like that. I, I'm not interested in doing that, right? Because I mean, we all know bad things happen, but you know what? The United States was founded on genocide and slavery, you know? Right. And, yeah. and uh, you know, uh, the, the United States has bombed and killed millions of people in places like Vietnam and Korea and, and Iraq and elsewhere. So, you know, I think that, you know, I put it this way, right? 
you know, when I was like a hard leftist, um, we would not celebrate the Thanksgiving holiday because we argued that this was a celebration of the oppression of native indigenous people. Mm -hmm. um, we, would, we would protest. We actually, there's a demonstration every year on Thanksgiving in Plymouth called the Day of Mourning against Thanksgiving, right? And they, they protest against the Thanksgiving holiday. It's by indigenous groups. Well, you know, nowadays I'm at the point where I don't think, I don't think that the majority of Americans that celebrate the Thanksgiving holiday are celebrating the genocide of Native Americans, right? right. They're not. They're celebrating time with their family. They're being thankful for what they have. And I think that awareness of what happened to the Native peoples, why that's wrong, can fit in with still celebrating that holiday for the same reason that I think one can wave the Soviet flag. Uh, one, can, one can study the writings of Marx and Lenin and, and celebrate their huge historic achievements like defeating the Nazis, like raising millions from poverty, like, you know, inventing space travel, like, you know, taking a backward agrarian country and making an industrial superpower with a planned economy, wiping out illiteracy, wiping out unemployment. One can celebrate those achievements without belittling or downplaying the, the hardships that happen, right? And that, right. that we need to have a balanced view of the history of socialism. I debated Stefan Molyneux, who's the big, <laughs> right. big on the internet. And we had this back and forth. And he was saying to me, oh, if you're a communist, you have to defend all of this. And I was saying, well, you know, if you're an inherited Western capitalism, then you have to defend all of this, right? And that, that I think we can look at the achievements of socialism in Cuba and Venezuela and in China and learn from it as we try to build a better United States for working families. Um, and that, that I don't like the way communist and, and anti-imperialist leaders, it's like they are immediately tainted. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and, and any association, anyone who says anything positive on Stalin must be canceled. But, you know, it's like, you know, do we cancel everyone who ever waves the American flag? Do we cancel everyone who celebrates Thanksgiving? Of course not. That's just what you're supposed to do. Well, that's right. a huge double standard and I don't appreciate it. And when it gets down to it, I, I, I talk about the lie of the 20th century because mm -hmm. every conversation in the United States about Bernie Sanders or about national health care inevitably gets back to socialism has never worked anywhere in the world. It's never accomplished anything. And if we can't overcome that big lie, Right. Socialism right. failed everywhere it's ever been tried. If we can't point out that, hey, socialism made China the second largest economy in the world. Socialism has made Cuba a country with a healthcare system that's that's admired all over the planet. You know, it was socialism that, that, that turned the USSR into a world superpower. If we can't overcome the big lie that socialism always fails and always makes people poor, we really can't have a conversation about just basic things in the United States. All economic discourse in the United States is predicated on the big lie that socialism always fails. So we have to overcome that in order to really talk about socialism. So you have to be a tanky in some sense to even talk about socialism, in my view. That doesn't mean you have to apologize for crimes against humanity. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think, you know, I don't know if this is like a new trend. Like I was reading recently people saying like, oh, should we cancel Aristotle or whatever? I've, I've been someone who's really uh, taken a lot from like reading theorists of all of all stripes. And I mean, I did my, my graduate thesis on the Arab Spring and I was, uh, I used Lenin's What is to be done to, to talk about a lot of it. And I was very hesitant to even like, you know, put out a thesis that was like citing Lenin, even though it should be a given that like, you know, everything I say is not an endorsement, like using someone's theories or learning from someone's theories is, is not endorsing, you know, everything they've ever done wholesale. And I, I, I say like my two biggest theoretical influences have been Lenin and 
St. Augustine and I'm not a Catholic and I've never been like pro USS, like I'm not uncritically pro USSR. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, 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 it's good to learn from things. And, and you note, you know, in the, in the green book, uh, as well, that like Gaddafi himself was not a Marxist, but there's like socialist lessons to be learned from him. And I've, I've noticed that you also kind of engaged with people like, uh, some very controversial people like Farrakhan, or you've talked with, uh, Alexander Duggan. Um, so, what what do you think is like the value in us engaging with different people and how can we approach it in ways that aren't pernicious? Well, it's interesting when you mention Lenin and being nervous about citing him in academic work, um, because I remember when I was in college, I was studying political science um, and I raised the issue of, you know, why do we not read Lenin's book, The State and Revolution in mm -hmm. any political theory class? And I was told, well, we just don't think it's relevant. And I said, well, you do realize that at one point, two thirds of the governments in the world in their constitutions cited Marxism Leninism as their foundational ideology. So that book, The State and Revolution by Lenin <laughs> is yeah. pretty important if you're gonna understand political science in our modern times, right? I mean, all of China, all the Soviet Union, so many countries in Africa, so many countries in Asia, so many countries in Latin America, in their constitutions, had it written that that this this book, Marxism Leninism and its theory of the state, is how we are governing, you'd think that that text would be pretty darn important. Um, but that shows kind of the the bias in American academia. Um, but you know, at, at the end of the day, right? I mean, I don't think anyone should blindly follow what's in that book either, right? I mean, I I argue that when it comes to socialism, that that what we need to do is we need to study all of it and blindly adhere to none of it. Right. And we need to come to understand all of it and try to formulate how we can develop a socialism that will work in our country in this time. When socialism comes to the United States, it'll be about addressing the contradictions in U.S. society. It'll be about resolving the class struggle and different tensions and, and issues in this country. Right. And that socialism everywhere has always been unique. You know, Mao's socialism was nothing like Soviet socialism. Cuba's socialism was nothing like China's socialism. And that, uh, that, that eventually we are going to have to develop some kind of socialism that will be uniquely applied to American circumstances to get us out of the crisis. Now, um, now in China, they call their system socialism with Chinese characteristics. So I've said that what we need is socialism with American characteristics. I'm being provocative, of course. That's obviously a Chinese but we need to figure out, and I don't know what it'll be like, right? That's something that will develop over the course of struggle and over the course of, of getting to it, we'll figure out what those American characteristics are. But that's something that, that will need to be determined. And we need to be bold enough to have that conversation. We need to be bold enough to say, you know what, we're not gonna, we're not gonna ever, I mean, it's an illusion to think that people in the United States are ever gonna adopt Kim Il-sungism or, or UK or, or, or the teachings of Bolivarian ideology in Latin America as their, as their guiding viewpoint, right? It's gonna be a uniquely American philosophy. And that socialism in the United States fits into a whole history of progressive struggles like John Brown, like uh, the labor unions, like the suffragists, right? Abraham Lincoln had a communist general in his army named August Willick. Uh, let's not forget that Roosevelt, the most, one of the most beloved presidents in US history, met with communist organizers like Gilbert Green of the Young Communist League at the White House. And that there is a long tradition of communists organizing in the United States having a big impact. I mean, the first person to use the word socialism in the English language was Robert Owen, 
And Robert Owen was Welsh. He was from Wales, but he moved to Indiana and tried to build a, a model socialist community in the city called New, uh, New Harmony. And it's still there. There's like a historical monument of, of the man who first used the word socialism in English. Robert Owen built a socialist community in Indiana. Um, and he actually gave a speech to a joint session of the U.S. Congress, a lecture on, on why socialism was better than capitalism. There's nothing un-American about socialism. Uh, however, over the course of the Cold War, we've really just been inculcated with this idea that the free market and capitalism is just integral to the American identity. Um, and, and that needs to be pushed back against. And I think a lot of people, unfortunately, in left-wing circles uh, who became activists in a time when the USA had a very prosperous economy in the middle of the Cold War, they've also kind of, you know, digested that. And so based on that, they say, well, we hate America. You know, we're the good Americans. We're going to burn the American flags. We're the, we're, you know, I mean, they, they think they're Sophie Scholl in Nazi Germany, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's basically how a lot of leftists have come to see themselves, right? And when it gets down to it, that's not a populist approach. That's, that might be an approach that you have when you're trying to stop a war, and you're at the heart of, an, of a very prosperous empire that's murdering people all over the world. But when you're actually in a situation where millions of Americans are hungry and desperate and angry and actually want to overthrow the system and are looking for answers, you have to completely adjust your approach. You can't be talking like, uh, like you know, a character in Hunger Games, right? That's not, that's not how you should approach the masses. You need to be the populist. You need to be the mass organizer who says that we are gonna get away out of the crisis. The slogan that I've tried to popularize is, we need a government of action to fight for working families. And I, I've tried to get that slogan everywhere. Imagine that, a government of action mm -hmm. that fights for working families. Not a government that talks one way or talks another way, but a government of action that actually fights for you and your family and your community. That's something that, that if people could understand that we could actually have a government that fights for us against the 1%, that could be a very, very powerful notion if that could become very widespread among the population. Yeah, I think I think definitely like there's yeah, there's been kind of a crisis in like how we appeal to people. And I, I've I've found um, that like one of my biggest influences from Augustinian theory, because I know that's kind of a funny influence to have, is he kind of talks about how like this world is not like it's an imperfect world. And like most people like if we if we can't get like, you know, full out like perfection we could we're not going to get it in this world we can strive for peace and like i kind of take that as well as seeing like people want certainty they want stability um and and i, I mean that's been a huge influence on me because it's been like okay you need to deal with the world like as it is as a very like imperfect sort of um system and i think one of the issues with the, with the left that i'm like my my work has been on on protest movements and i think there's kind of a fetishization of just the aesthetics of protest and the aesthetics of like disorderliness that doesn't really map on to what people want and so when you're talking about like say the wall street occupy wall street romanticizing the arab spring i think you know this is a huge uh problem on the left where we think like okay yeah there's these romantic images of people um, protesting in, in Egypt or, or Libya or Syria. We don't know what their ideals are. We like, we don't know what they're asking for. So like a lot of the research I did in Egypt, like there were protesters who want, who were mad at the government for not, uh, for getting rid of like 
FGM and like there are some people who are feminist protesters like there's a complete uh like these movements are not a monolith and you need to look at what they're actually asking for and I think you know with the imperial left we see people who are you know in the streets with with a sign and they think like okay well that's it like we have to support that now and if you are against intervention in these places then you're a tanky who like hates the people and you hate the protesters and I think that's kind of been one of my biggest pet peeves because I'm saying like you're not going to be able to socially engineer uh these governments from like if you're an American or a Canadian you're not going to be able to like like you uh your government intervening in these countries even if like there are protesters who are left-wing or progressive like the real impact of that is never has never been a progressive government like look at Iraq look at Libya like there's never been like none of these have ever resulted in, in a progressive government at all so it's kind of delusional yeah well I've, I've written about that I mean part of the the problem with these movements or I wouldn't even say the problem part of why they're effective in destabilizing a country um, is that they're not about anything, right? Um, the green movement in Iran, what's it about? Green, right? I mean, more freedom. What? I mean, it's about green. I mean, you know, and you'll notice that, uh, you know, when the protests started against Gaddafi, uh, when the, pro- the orange revolution in Ukraine, you know, these color revolutions are not about anything, right? At the end of the day. And, you know, I noticed this at Occupy Wall Street too. The, the NGO crowd, the NGO socialists, the people tied in with Soros and the think tanks and all that. Oh, we can't make any demands. We can't make any demands. And so when you have a movement that's just vague, right? It's just, you know, what is it? Occupy Wall Street. We're against the 1% or, you know, it's about green or it's about, you know, human rights or against corruption or, you know, just these vague slogans. Anybody throughout the political spectrum can project their desires right. on them. Um, <laughs> And so a lot of people that wouldn't come out to support a CIA revolution, you know, get duped and get tricked, you know, um, get tricked into it. Um, A great example is the Tiananmen events of 1989 in China, right? If you look at those events, right? um, If you saw it on Western TV, you know, they made it sound like these students want Western capitalism. But the more you look into that, the more you realize that is totally, totally not the case. It was way more complicated than that. There were uh, neo-Maoists and Gang of Four supporters who set up in Tiananmen Square. And in fact, according to a book that was published by Harvard University, there were more pictures of, of Maoist face in Tiananmen Square during the 1989 events than there were during the Cultural Revolution. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, according to Nicholas Kristof of the New York Times, a big demand of the students was racism. They didn't want black people to go to college in China. Right. And no one talks about this. But Nicholas Kristof was in China and he talked about how in the lead up to the Tiananmen protests, as the student movement in China was building in in the late 1980s, there were race riots taking place all over Chinese college campuses where Chinese students would come and lynch and murder African students. Um, And they wanted the Chinese government to pass a ban on interracial dating and that, you know, they, they were all over China on the universities, race riots were happening. And a lot of the leaders of the Tiananmen protests were people that were involved with fomenting race riots on Chinese campuses. Okay. Right. Add into the mix, there were some labor unions, and there were people who didn't want state industries to be privatized under Deng Xiaoping. There probably were people who wanted the free market and everything else, right? And that's what happens when the CIA is destabilizing a country. They make it so chaotic that anyone who has any grievance can just join it. 
meanwhile, they've got the guns, they've got the money, and they're maneuvering in the background to pull off the coup, right? The, the protest movement is not really about, the pro about what happens. It's about setting the stage and creating the atmosphere through which the people that they have, you know, compromised in the military and in the state apparatus can overthrow the government. And that's what happened in country after country in the Eastern Bloc. The protesters would go out and they would be demanding all kinds of things and it would be chaos in the streets. And then that would create the pretext for the pro-American general to march into the capital and overthrow the government, right? And that's how these things work. And that's what they were trying to do in 1989 in China, right? It was, they were, there was a lot of people that had a lot of grievances about all kinds of things. And there was a lot of instability. Um, and uh, what's interesting is, and if you look at the details, right, there was, there, was, there was martial law declared. And the students actually, according to Nicholas Kristof of the New York Times, according to BBC reporters who were there, according to the Chilean diplomats from the Pinochet government who were there, the students dispersed from Tiananmen Square peacefully. According to WikiLeaks now, we have this information. They dispersed peacefully. The killing and violence took place outside the square. You know, in the following week, there was mass killing outside of Tiananmen Square. And it's not even clear that the people doing the killing were even the same people that were protesting. But a number of Chinese soldiers were killed. There were snipers on the roofs of buildings that shot Chinese soldiers. Uh, there was gunfire exchanged and, and students were killed. Chinese soldiers were killed. All kinds of people were injured. According to the Washington Post, people were running around with chains and baseball bats and guns. And there was a pitched battle that happened outside the square, right? But this narrative that we have of what happened in Tiananmen Square in the United States is pure projection, right? We have it in our heads. First of all, all these students wanted Western capitalism and freedom and democracy. That's not clear. And so the Chinese government being maniacally evil in this fit of rage said, we're going to crush your song of peace and ran them all over with tanks in a fit of tyrannical evil rage. That's not what happened either. It's much more complicated than that. And what happened was basically China was in a, a turning, a pivoting point where they had moved in a more free market direction. All of Eastern European socialist governments were being overthrown one by one. And the CIA thought that would be a good moment to try and pull that off in, in China. And they failed. That's what happened, right? Um, and uh, and you know, I, you know, is it, it? It's a very sad event. A lot of people suffered and died who shouldn't have died. I'm sure there are plenty of innocent people who got hurt, but that's not the narrative that we have of it. You know, this this narrative of the tanks crushing the that 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 narrative I just recited that we get every year on the anniversary is mm -hmm. not what happened. Okay, and it's yeah. pure projection. It's a projection of the 1960s. Right. I mean, we think about the 1960s and, you know, after Kent State, after the killing at Kent State University in 1970, when anti-war protesters were shot. You know, I grew up near Kent State University. And I was constantly hearing from people. They should have shot all of them. These were anti-war hippies disrespecting the country. You know, it was like it was it, it's a projection of that kind of thinking onto the Chinese government. Right. right. The, the protesters in Tiananmen Square were not hippies and the Chinese military was not, you know, Rambo, uh, you know, and, right. and it's completely it's a complete projection and we do this right and that the 1960s narrative is often projected on things that are, are very complicated look most of the people that were protesting Assad in 2011 now support the government right there were yeah I was gonna say actually because in, in when the protests first started I like I've supported them um no one was a fan of the government and like there's definitely some authoritarian stuff that um needed to be addressed and so I thought oh this is great you know like this is uh this might be very fruitful. And 
I think this is this was a huge ideological development for me because I saw like in front of my own eyes like this sort of this became like a, a movement where who had the most power it was it ended up being an Islamist sort of fascistic movement and I mean as someone who's been very um you know involved in like wanting rights for minorities and in, in, in these, this region right like especially for Christians and, and Shias it was it really rubbed me the wrong way and I was kind of like okay like this is basically helping me sort of develop my theory that I, I wrote about in my in my thesis that like if these if protests are not cohesive like if they if they just have a vague thing like the government's bad um which that's basically what this like what a lot of these pro-democracy protests are and that's fine like that might be good at helping bring people out onto the street uh or, or it, it might be a good sentiment to build on but if you don't really build on it and create something more specific and cohesive and something that appeals to the average person because most average people don't want like al-qaeda being the government um if you're not able to to do that then whoever is the best funded, whoever is the best armed is gonna be the one that takes over the movement. And that I think happened with Syria. And so what's happened is, yeah, I think a lot of people now have been like, okay, well, we would rather have like a secular authoritarian than have like Al Qaeda or have like what's happening in Idlib right now, for instance. Um, and so that's kind of been my huge sort of takeaway from that. Yeah, well, I, I wanted to go back to something you said before about, uh, you know, St. Augustine, mm -hmm. right? Um, because it's interesting, because one of my more popular presentations is on the fall of Rome and the fall of the Roman oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah and I, I talk about the City of God by St. Augustine, because that book was, was written from a defensive perspective, because, mm -hmm. you know, Christianity had a little bit of a problem coming out of the fall of Rome, which is that this great empire that ruled all of the known world had collapsed roughly around the same time it adopted the Christian religion. Um, and so he wrote this book to basically try and explain, well, you know, that's okay. And, and here's some basic Christian theology to, and it was written from a defensive perspective. And what I think is, is, is fascinating about all of this is that uh, if one's familiar with the teachings of Jesus, one will know that the Jesus's teachings are not the kind of thing designed to build an effective mighty empire to conquer people all over the world. Yeah. You know, and that it really, I mean, in a way it's almost kind of unnecessary. Um, and that I, I, I draw a lot from Michael Parenti and his very, very good book on the assassination of Julius Caesar and how really what it got down to is Julius Caesar represented a very small faction in the Roman ruling class, in the late Roman Republic, before the Republic fell, before the emperors came, um, that realized that Rome was not sustainable as an empire. Um, that the way it was functioning by basically holding back historical progress and, and maintaining a, a system of slavery, which is a very inefficient system, the bigger your slave empire gets, the more, the less productive it gets, the more it holds back technological progress, that Julius Caesar represented a faction in the Roman ruling class that realized that if the Roman empire was going to survive, they needed to change. And so Julius Caesar mobilized the working class, the proletariat, those who were not slaves, but they also had no property. They weren't property owners, patricians or plebeians, but they were also not slaves. They, 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 had, they had their freedom, right? It was the, the small property, uh, the, the small, the, the, the proletarians, right? I mean, those with nothing to sell but their labor power, the craftsmen. They were the ones uh, who built, you know, and supported Julius Caesar's movement. 
And Julius Caesar was trying to enact progressive reforms on behalf of the proletariat uh, to try and change the way the Roman Empire functioned. He wanted to give citizenship to people throughout the empire. He wanted to turn Athens and Alexandria into giant centers of trade. Um, he had kind of a, a vision almost similar to the Belt and Road, actually, to what China is doing today of trying to trying to make the, the you know, Rome sustainable by by making it have a relationship where it developed countries rather than tore them down and destroyed them. Um, and he was stabbed to death. Uh, the Roman senators were not going to have it. Um, and the, the, the assassination of Julius Caesar made the fall of Rome pretty inevitable because Julius Caesar represented the faction that understood that, that Rome couldn't continue the way it did. And when Julius Caesar was killed and when the Roman Empire became committed uh, to its destructive and, and reactionary policies that were about holding back technological development, it was doomed to fail uh, from that point. And also that, that what's kind of beautiful about, about you know, uh, Christianity from that time is that you know, during the time of the Roman Empire, Christianity really became the religion of the proletariat. Um, and Karl Kautsky, one of the great Marxist scholars uh, of, of the 1800s, uh, he talked about how, how in Rome you had homelessness for the first time, right? You don't have homeless slaves, they're slaves. You don't have homeless you know, property owners, but when you have proletarians, you have a homelessness, right? When you have proletarians, you have unemployment. And that the Christian, Christian movement became the movement of the proletarians. And it had, you know, it was a religion for the proletarians. They built orphanages, right? And they had, you know, you know food, you know, for, for hungry people. And that, that very much the, uh, the Christian religion kind of functioned as a, a religion of the proletariat within the Roman city. Um, and, uh, and that's kind of where it came from. And, that a lot, and the reason that it, that it was adopted is because a lot of the craftsmen in Rome, you know, the, the masons and bricklayers, the pipe fitters, those kind of people were from Palestine. They were Jews from Palestine and that Christianity originated as a, a kind of a Jewish, uh, Jewish sect that followed the teachings of Jesus Christ. And eventually you have, you know, Paul arguing that, well, we're not simply a Jewish sect, you know, that, that people don't have to be circumcised. They can be circumcised in the spirit. And you have Christianity, you know, expanding to become this global religion, mainly because it was a way that proletarians in Rome could take care of each other and fight for their rights against the empire. Uh, it's, it's kind of a fascinating history there. I mean, the way Christianity kind of developed uh, coming out of Rome with, you know, St. Augustine and all that, I think is really fascinating. There's a lot in it that Marxists can draw from. Great Marxist scholars are not afraid to look into this. Um, it's kind of weird that in left-wing circles, there's kind of a taboo around anything related to religion. Right. Um, yeah. Oh, we, we can't talk about that ever. Well, I'm sorry. Millions of people in the world believe in religion. If you're going to understand people around the world, you need to understand their religion and, and what values it promotes, where it came from, where it's going, etc. Yeah, I think so, too. And I used to be like very into like new atheism and very annoying about religion. But I, I think also as like I get older, I'm kind of like I, I can see that it's kind of left a sort of gap in like the the decline of religion has left a sort of gap and I think that's like in a way like not been good for society I think it's been replaced with forms of like hyper nationalism in some cases that might not be good or like you know a lot of online like really toxic online communities that I think you know are probably from that I'm still not religious but I think there needs to be something if like you're not going to be that you need to like replace it with some sort of thing and I'm not really sure what when exactly <laughs> college around 2007 2008 I was walking through my dorm room and somebody had the tv on and it was Richard Dawkins was on c-span yeah. talking and I stopped and I was like what in the world is this right and <laughs> and I was hearing it and I thought whoa and you know I will say as much as I I am a religious person 
uh, the, the new atheist movement did a good thing. Uh, it gave the religious right, the evangelical movements, it gave them a punch in the nose that they really deserved, right? I mean, evangelical fundamentalist Christian movements that supported George W. Bush and helped the neocons have power and have been key and, and building support for the Israeli governments have promoted a kind of uh, a kind of hyper-religious, uh, you know, I mean, I don't even want to call it religious, but kind of a cultivated ignorance, right? Where it's, you know, everything in the Bible is true. There was, used to be a bumper sticker I used to see. It says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, you know, and it's just this kind of like hyper-ignorance that they were promoting. You know, every question, you ask them like a serious question, it's answered with, well, God loves you, man. We, we don't have to understand that, you know, this kind of like you know, cultivated stupidity almost that they built that translated to support George W. Bush, support the Republican Party, support Israel. And so when Dawkins came along and Hitchens and Sam Harris and all of that, and they came along, they were, they did a good thing, I think, by, by now, you know, there's still a religious right in this country, but I feel like it's much more voluntary. I knew people who just, they were evangelicals and Christian right people because their family was and because they went to a, a school like that. Now it's much more voluntary. Now, if you're going to be in that movement, the truth is out there. You know, the, the, the understanding that not everything in the Bible is absolutely literally true is out there. And, and you're choosing to be in that movement, right? You're making a, an intellectual choice. You're saying, you know what? I am choosing to be in it. Didn't used to be that way. A lot of people were in the evangelical neocon Christian right simply because they, did, they were. They didn't think about it. Well, that's changed because of what they did. And I give them credit for that. And I actually talk about that in the Kamala Harris book. Um, however, there's some pretty big flaws in it. Um, you know, one of my critiques of the, the new atheist movement is I noticed, especially if you watch Religious by Bill. Yeah, Martin, I did watch that. actually. <laughs> so, yeah, he starts out. It's like, you know, fundamentalists, you know, in in the Muslim world are terrorists and, you know, extremists and dangerous. Right. Uh, fundamentalists in America are, you know, are racist and ignorant and sexist and stupid. And, you know, in Israel, uh, Orthodox Jews wear funny hats. You know, I mean, it's just, they, they just wear funny hats. I mean, I, I mean, and it's like, I'm thinking about like all the evil things Israel has done, all the evil things settlers do in the name of their Orthodox beliefs, you know, big blank spot. And I'm thinking, whoa, what's wrong there? And that a lot of the new atheist movement is virulently Islamophobic, right? The way they see it, Islam is the most evil, worst religion. And the crimes of Zionism, because in a lot of cases, Israel presents itself in a secular manner as a supporter, right. et cetera. They have a complete blind spot for the atrocities of Zionism. Um, and another criticism I have of the new atheist movement is similar to what you said, which is that it leaves a blank spot, right? It leads to this, there is no truth. And that they've even talked about the new atheist to libertarian to alt-right pipeline. Um, and that many people have talked about this, right? You know, that a young American white male grows up in a deeply religious family. Uh, one day he discovers Richard Dawkins and, and you know, realizes that, uh, you know, the Bible is not literally true and, and you know, that, you know and, and starts to criticize and, you know, basic evangelical Christianity. From there, he decides he's really smart. So he's a free market libertarian, right? Um, and he gets into Ayn Rand and we need to privatize everything. And he's smart. He can understand the rest of the world are ignorant fools, but he has the true scientific understanding. And so we need to, you know, we need to privatize everything and deregulate the market so great men like him can succeed. And, and you know, all the inferior rabble will be held back by his greatness, you know, the Ayn Rand kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then from there, uh, suddenly he gets into racial racial pseudoscience and the idea that, well, he's, he's great because he's white and the white man is, and this is the dangerous, this is a fascist 
pipeline that develops, right? Is and and it starts with kind of the destruction, the destruction of of a religious faith that is so shallow, right? That Christianity is is a, a religion that's been around for thousands of years, right? And that it's it's a very deep, beautiful religion. There have been big debates in the religion about what it means. But what the evangelical movement has done is they have watered it down, right? The roots of the religious right, it's really interesting. The roots of the religious right go back to the 1960s, right? In the 1960s, you had all these people protesting the Vietnam War and for civil rights. Young people didn't want to go to church. It was boring and dull. They wanted to go to a rock concert. They wanted to watch television. Um, and, you know, the liberals were winning among the young people, right? Left, the left was, was surging ahead. And Richard Nixon uh, realized this was a bit of a problem. Um, and uh, they, they, they realized the left was winning and the protest movement was growing. They, so they, they made a strategic decision. They saw that among the young people that were protesting the Vietnam War, there was a, a group of people, you know, hippies, you could call them, that were called like Jesus freaks. They were hippies who, who their hippieism, their counterculturalism manifested itself as being Christian. And so Billy Graham, who was the spiritual advisor to Richard Nixon, started featuring these Jesus freaks on his broadcasts and having long-haired hippies playing, playing songs on his right-wing Christian broadcasts he did uh, during, during the early 70s. And then Richard Nixon imported to the United States in 1974, Reverend Sun Young Moon. And Reverend Sun Young Moon is a fanatical pastor from South Korea who's a fanatical anti-communist, but claimed he was building a global peace movement to, and basically claimed he was Jesus brought to the earth to unify the Christians of the world for a holy war against communism. And they started recruiting these young Jesus freaks into a right-wing movement. And by about 1978, 79, when the moral majority was coming into existence, what this basically was, was Christianity, Protestant Christianity in the United States, reinventing itself to be using, you know, using watered down, highly emotional rock music and vague theology that could appeal to the kind of people who grew up listening to rock and roll music and, and listening to watching television. And they created kind of a very watered down, synthetic, highly emotional, you know, movement that's almost about hypnotizing people, getting them into a trance uh, and, and getting them to, to cry and sob and do what you say, right? Um, and that's, that's basically, that's basically what a lot of people that, you know, a lot of people from my generation grew up in. They grew up around this movement that is really shallow and kind of pathetic. And, and, and if you can start to see through that, all of a sudden, all of a sudden the world comes apart. And, and I think that that's at the root of what we're talking about. I'm sorry if I've gone on for a while. No, no, it's very, very interesting. I, I definitely like had like, yeah, similar takes on, on this like my my big atheist journey and I, sometimes I joke about it because it's like you know a lot of it I think is you know being a teenager in a catholic school I think that was a lot of my experience and <laughs> but but yeah I do think there's definitely a huge um sort of discussion that needs to be had so I think it's good to you know have that information out there um well, this is all in my book on Kamala Harris. I talk about where Kamala Harris came from, how she fits into these this trajectory of trends in U.S. politics. Yeah, no, I think she's definitely like this whole election is really a sort of logical culmination of the direction that oh, like I from my observation as the Canadian, but it seems like a sort of very logical culmination of the direction the U.S. was was heading in and. I have a feeling she's going to end up being the, the president soon. So uh, good luck to 
even though less than one percent of Democratic primary voters actually voted for her. She is very bad. Yeah. Yeah. He was selected by the Hillary Clinton State Department individuals, by George Soros, by a group of funders uh, who met in in Long Island, New York, uh, in the Hamptons, and they made a decision not to push Hillary Clinton to run again, but to, to back Kamala Harris. Uh, it's that particular State Department faction that is committed to global revolution. I mean, that's basically what they believe. They want global chaos and destruction in order to keep Western capitalism intact, in order to unleash the individual and carry out kind of the Ayn Rand fantasy of, of you know, individualism above all else and free market. Right. They want what Anne-Marie Slaughter, who was an advisor to Hillary Clinton, called the open international system. Uh, that's what they want. Um, and they want a global revolution to carry it out. And that's very mm -hmm. disturbing. Um, you know, that, that, not that Trump is not very disturbing. I mean, look how he handled this pandemic. Look how he killed Qasem Soleimani. And it's, it's, it looks like he's trying to bring us to the brink of World War III just before he leaves office with Iran. Yeah, that's so, definitely making me nervous. And uh, I think also like having Pompeo in there as well is just... I've said this before, but like the one good outcome of this election is Pompeo leaving office, even though he's probably going to be replaced by someone terrible. But that's, you know, um, but I do definitely recommend to the listeners, uh, Caleb has really like with the Kamala book. Uh, you went on Twink Revolution and talked about it. And I listened to that. And it was very informative. So if people uh, want to learn more about that, I definitely recommend that episode as well. Uh, we're coming up on time. They're really hmm? great. So the Twink Rev guys are really Oh, fun. yeah, they're great. They're wonderful. Um, that's how I was introduced to your work. So uh, lots of blessings to the Twink Revs. Um, so we're coming up on time. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Is there anything you want to promote? Uh no, but I just, you know, I'm on YouTube. I do YouTube streams uh, every every couple days now. Um, so people should get on and join the community of people that are on YouTube and are part of the streaming community. And I would encourage people to make their own content, right? Make their mm -hmm. own, you know, if you understand this stuff, if you're awakening to some of the problems that we discussed here with the left and how we need a new road forward, make some videos about it, read about it. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do have a number of books that are available that I've written. I'm trying to build a think tank called the Center for Political Innovation. So people should check out what we're all about and uh, be in touch. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you everybody for listening and thanks Caleb for coming on and I'll see you, uh, see you out there. 